Hello and welcome to today's Global Council event on the economic recovery in, in China. My name is Thomas Kratowski. I'm a senior practice director at Global Council in the Global Macro Practice. And I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues, David Skilling, who is a senior advisor at GC, and Jens Prestos, who is an associate director in the Global Macro Practice. China's uh, zero uh, COVID policy uh, last year was perhaps one of the key macro stories of 2022. And as a result, it's perhaps not surprising that the reopening of China's economy should be really a key story, at least at the moment and of the last month. Now, we thought today would be a good opportunity to take stock perhaps about how we think the recovery is going, to what extent China's rebound is as strong perhaps as expected, and to what extent we see some headwinds from the geopolitical environment as well to this rebound. Now, Jens and I, we had also the pleasure of being in, in Hong Kong last week to hold several discussions with people on the ground, be it in the financial community, uh, among corporates and other thinkers and clients to discuss this environment. And some of our reflections today will be, of course, also informed by that. Let me ask perhaps, because Jens, you were with me in Hong Kong last week, as I want to ask the first question to you. Now, as I said, this reopening should really be a cause for optimism. But what struck me in conversations at Hong Kong last week is just how everyone is perhaps more cautious than I expected, perhaps more nuanced in their description of the rebound. Now, can you perhaps elaborate on this point, why perhaps we encountered such mixed feelings about the recovery? Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Thomas. And it's a tricky one because data for the first quarter of this year, and especially in March, were pretty good. I've been, for the last few months, been a little bit skeptical about the strength of the recovery and then so much data and it was really good, especially on the retail sales front. And importantly, it didn't just exceed 2022 levels, which was unsurprising perhaps because of lockdowns, but it was a lot better than 2021 and 2019 levels, which weren't as impacted by pandemic restrictions. And so that really at least took me by surprise and it could into the strong recovery narrative, um, if you will. Um, and then we see now lots of photos from the Labor Day and holiday that just ended uh, overcrowded tourist signs, which in numbers are exceeding 2019 levels in terms of spending uh, and, and trips means. So all of this feeds into the narrative of a really strong recovery. But as you said, a lot of people on the ground are still a bit cautious about the strength and in part because you sort of had to expect that there would be a recovery almost by default. And we're now seeing some data coming in, PMIs for instance, for April softened to some extent, especially on the non-manufacturing signs. It's interesting there because people buy into that as being the services one. But if you look at the different components, the non-manufacturing PMI in China is driven, also includes construction activity, and which is the main driver there. Services is going up, but it's still a lot softer uh, than construction, which is driving it. And then we've also seen a little bit of other indicators too. If you look at the property market, for instance, after three pretty strong months, April sales were quite disappointing. Uh, a lot less people can, came to viewings, which perhaps indicates that May also may not be that good. New project starts, for instance, for the first quarter of this year, were actually 18% lower than already very low levels in 2022. So there's quite a few sort of data points there that don't really fully align, which makes it a little bit complicated to, to really assess the strength of the recovery. Um, and I think perhaps as a last point, that if you look at, you mentioned how investors are looking at this and obviously that is feeding into what we see in market data too. So uh, if you look at Chinese equity indices and if you look at commodity prices, 
they pretty much all shed the uh, reopening gate from basically from starting from November. Most of that is gone. Obviously, there's a little bit of gain still in, in the equity space, but a lot of that has been shed. And that kind of gives you an indication of people aren't fully buying into the strength of the recovery. And even travel yeah. stocks today on the first day of reopening after the Labor Day holiday, a lot of tra- travel stocks fell by 5 to 15%, which if you looked at then travel data, you would have thought it would be the other way. And so it gives you an impression that the market at least shares some of our views that we're not fully sure we're there yet. To summarize that, would you, well, to follow up on that, would you think that what market tell us basically is there is skepticism that we're actually at the beginning of a recovery cycle, that this might be rather a blip that is perhaps short-lived and then we enter a period of already slower growth. And as we know, IMF and others have warned that obviously China's medium-term growth outlook will be will be lower than perhaps expected uh, before the pandemic. Uh, so on between a new cycle and a blip, uh, do you think, you know, uh, to some extent markets think it's more the first one? How, how would you describe it? Yeah, to some extent, because and, and as you mentioned, I think there's an emerging consensus now that China's medium to long-term growth outlook is not super bright. Growth will be lower than we perhaps expected if we went back five years. And there is possibly a feeling now that we're seeing a lot of the pent-up demand that we thought would go on for many months in 2023, possibly is being exhausted faster than expected. It's obviously too soon to tell, but there is some data points that is then feeding into what a lot of market participants are feeling too, that there is still some some uncertainty there. And perhaps then, as you say, that there is a little bit of a blip that a lot of what we thought would be months of really strong recovery might to some extent have been exhausted already. Obviously, too soon to sell, but that is what people are thinking. And I think that's a fair point to make until we get some more data to, to show where we are. Yeah, that's very interesting because I think it also poses perhaps the question where who invests in China, perhaps at the moment, what is the outlook for investment in China, especially private sector investment has been obviously important, be it in the tech sector, be it in other sectors that have also been quite important for job creation, of course, another key government priority. Now, speaking to especially foreign investors, I think there's an, a sense that actually the geopolitical environment is also adding a lot to the uncertainty and actually to the reluctance of investing in China. At the same time, of course, the United States relationship with China is a different one than the relationship that, that Europe has with China. And what struck me was really a sense that commercial relations with Europe are largely seen as stable, perhaps in contrast to with the United States. And Macron's recent visit to, to, to China perhaps increased those impressions. Now, the commission pres- president, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, perhaps been diverging from some of Macron's views on on, on China. And so, David, that's an area where I l- would like to bring you in since you have been watching the Europe-China relationship for many years from Singapore and from Europe. And so my question perhaps is, who is winning the argument in Europe? Is it von der Leyen or is it Macron? How will, Europe's, how will Europe define its commercial relationship with China and how will that perhaps impact on FDI flows from Europe to China? I think that the argument is not in favor of Mr. Macron. Well, I think his recent efforts in Beijing and the notorious interview on the plane trip back, something of an outlier. I don't think that represents a consensus uh, in Europe, not that a consensus uh, in a, to a full degree exists, but I think the center of gravity is shifting much more, much more towards Ms. von der Leyen, who gave a speech a few days before she 
and Mr. McFawn went to Beijing. Mr. Beijing, Mr. McFawn was given a red carpet treatment. She was very much not. She's in a much more hawkish position. The narrative that she's using is one of de-risking, so not decoupling, because that's certainly for Europe and even for the US not possible, but de-risking, trying to reduce the areas of strategic vulnerability, areas where either China is so important from an export perspective or in terms of supply chains. So particularly in areas of technology, uh, critical inputs into supply chains and the like. Uh, she is saying, look, Europe needs to be much more deliberate, much more hard-headed about reducing uh, Europe's exposure uh, to China. Uh, and I think, you know, if you look even at countries like the Netherlands, historically a very kind of open free trading country, you know, recent restrictions on uh, exports by ASML of advanced semiconductor technology. And you see many European countries, I think, reappraising over the last few years, and particularly over the last year you know, in a post-Ukraine world, uh, you know, how they think about managing economic relations with uh, what is becoming a, a geopolitical rival. So I think the centre of gravity uh, is shifting. It's partly shifting because of uh, within Europe conversations. Uh, it's also shifting because the US is applying more pressure uh, both to European member states, the EU member states, but also to the EU um, uh, as an institution. You know, I think that centre of gravity uh, is shifting. Uh, I think we can expect over the next few months to see additional uh, outbound investment restrictions, additional export restrictions. Some of them are already in place. We'll see more of that. Uh, in the context of the new economic security strategy uh, that the Commission is putting out. But again, it, even in Germany, uh, which has got a bit of a reputation for being somewhat uh, mechanicalist, I suppose, uh, on the China relationship, we're seeing a tough thing. Political parties are putting out China statements that have a much more hawkish uh, language. I think the centre of gravity is shifting towards a tougher uh, Euro European approach uh, to China. There is some daylight between the US uh, and the EU. Uh, the US is much more hawkish uh, than Europe, and so I can understand from a from a Chinese perspective, uh, Europe might be seen as a bit less uh, troublesome than the US. But directionally, I think this language of the risking uh, is something that the US and the EU have in common. Uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, referenced the de-risking concept favourably in a speech he gave a couple of weeks back. So I think in, in a uh, you know in, in broad degree, the US and the EU are kind of broadly aligned. There are some tactical differences, and the US is going to remain more hawkish. But I expect we're going to see. Yeah, a much more challenged EU-China uh, commercial relationship than we've seen you know, over the last five, ten years. There's going to be a sea change, I think, in that relationship. That's interesting, especially you mentioned some of the measures that are currently in discussion in, in, in Europe, be it related to, to anti-subsidy measures, be it related to outbound FDI investment, but FDI screening. So perhaps for our listeners who try to understand what perhaps are the flashpoints that the relationship between Europe and China or between the United States and China could see what would be could we see an next round of escalation fairly soon as a result of that or what is your view on 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 what the re, what the impact will be of these measures i think you know, i'm not so sure it's an escalation as much as a continuation of existing measures uh, right so wheels in brussels often turn reasonably slowly so a lot of the stuff has been flagged so if you read miss von der Leyen's speeches over the last um a couple of months or so she's been flagging quite explicitly you know increasing restrictions on outbound investment uh, as well as kind of broader uh, trade restrictions, particularly in areas of sensitivity. So uh, semiconductors, uh, biotech, quantum, you know, issues like that, where there are, those technologies are often dual use, both civilian and military use, or uh, where there is some particular sensitivity, uh, and also trying to reduce vulnerabilities in terms of supply chain. So there's a Critical Medicines Act discussion underway at the moment, largely motivated by a sense that Europe wants to reduce its exposure to inputs uh, into pharmaceutical process that are coming from China. So across array, uh, an array of uh, areas of strategic importance across the European economy, uh, there is this process of, as I say, kind of de-risking, trying to reduce that. So 
you know, these, these measures are being uh, toughened. They're also moving from member state level to being applied consistently across the EU, so being done at, at, EU, uh, at EU level. But I think that's less of an escalation as much as a, a reflection of a, of a change in sentiment. Uh, and again, I think you know, there has been a, you know, a recalibration of uh, the EU's, of Europe's approach to China you know, as a consequence of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a, a sense that you know, engagement, a sense that perhaps we were a bit naive in terms of expecting we could continue to trade with countries with whom we had significant differences in values and interests. Uh, that lesson has been learned over the last 12 months because of the, the Russian invasion. I think those lessons are being applied in the context of you know, reassessing the way in which the China relationship is, is conducted. Uh, of course, there are any number of flashpoints that could lead to, you know, to use your words, an, an escalation. You know, uh, sort of uh, tensions around Taiwan, for example. You know, the Chinese ambassador to France's comments around territorial integrity of some of the, the post-Soviet states was another um, uh, irritant, I suppose. So there are any number of uh, sort of issues that could escalate, uh, that could become more salient, that could uh, accelerate this process. But I think there is a fairly clear direction of travel uh, that's going to play out over the next um, sort of over the next several months. Yeah, and what is perhaps my, what was perhaps our sense, and, and Jens, maybe that's why I wanted to bring you back in, is that especially on the US side, there, there is an attempt to perhaps make a distinction between measures that are intended for national security reasons and otherwise measures that are in, in, intended to, or otherwise an intention perhaps to make sure that the risking does not end up in decoupling. But for our discussions in, in, in Hong Kong, what do you think, how this current approach of de-risk that is now used in Europe, but obviously, what do you think how, how people in, in China think about that? So it's an interesting one because if you read, if you read government statements, at least, it's pretty clear that they're not buying into the idea of de-risking vs decoupling our competition at the same time so you can cooperate on things. It, the new, at least in Beijing, seems pretty clear that you're moving in one direction. That's not the good direction. It's a clinch. You might not have full decoupling because that's very hard to, to do in practical terms, but you are splitting apart in, in, in some areas. Um, at the same time, uh, a lot of other stakeholders, perhaps not in governments, are of the view that, especially in Europe, things aren't going so badly and that there's a view that Europe is not necessarily the, the hostile force in the same way as the US is and that relations will smoothen out that current cooperation between Europe and the US when it comes to trade investment restrictions. That's just a blip, as you said earlier, possibly, that the belief is that such cooperation will bring so much economic harm to major European economies and that it's not sustainable in the long term and that Europe will gradually then warm up to more cooperation with China. And for us, to have opinions about that yourself, Thomas, that was a bit of a surprise because that's not necessarily how we see it and how David laid it out earlier too. So that was very interesting and a bit surprising, I would say. Exactly. That was our impression that what David just described perhaps isn't fully yet grasped by at least some of the people we spoke to uh, spoke to in in China who still saw Europe perhaps as a more as a more how can you say a more benign perhaps partner than the United States which stays stays quite intentionally away from the more hawkish approach of the United States now and there is a there's an element of truth to that the US and the EU are not don't have quite the same approach the US is going to be more hawkish yeah. both because they're more limited economic exposure to China but also just because of underlying worldview so they are slightly different postures. But I think that the risk in, in, in China is that difference is overinterpreted. It's in a more binary terms. And I think that it, there are differences. Those differences are, I think, narrowing over time. And I think also the point that you made earlier is an interesting one about what's the perceived difference between de-risking and decoupling. And so Jake Sullivan, when he gave a speech a couple of weeks back, trying to outline the new US approach to ECMO policy, talked about this notion of being very tightly focused on only constraining engagement with China on 
national security grounds, so very kind of tightly constrained set of goods and services and technology. So it talks about a small yard and a high fence. But I think outside of Washington, D.C., he's not convincing too many people. I think the concern is that what's constrained is going to grow and grow over time. It's certainly the case in the U.S. And I think the concern is that's also going to be possibly the case in Europe as well. These constraints have a self-perpetuating logic over time. Yeah, that's a very good point. I would like to come back to our earlier topic on the recovery. Obviously, all of this plays into the outlook of China for FDI and for private investment. Of course, one one of the trends that we have seen in China, and especially with the new economic team now in place, is perhaps, again, a rebalancing of priorities more towards the state sector. And so, of course, in China, traditionally, the state plays an important role in the economy. And so, perhaps, Jens, I wanted to ask you, whether you think actually, what do you think policymakers think actually about the strength of the recovery and what perhaps Chinese measures, government measures might be to support it, be it consumers, be it be it SOEs, be it other domestic private entities, uh, or is China perhaps as a reaction to the geopolitical headwinds that we say, trying to become more defensive, closing even more itself through, through an increasing of state influence and state intervention in the economy? Yeah. So there's a lot to that. I'll try to, to grasp it all. I think the to start, what was very interesting was to hear the Politburo last Friday when it met for a session on the economy and on economic policy, where they described the recovery as restorative, and uh, that they didn't really necessarily think that this was a very strong recovery. They pointed out that they're still being it's still being challenged by what they described as weak internal dynamics, and that domestic demand is really a big issue, and that is not picking up necessarily as fast as they expected. So. In that sense, it seems like Chinese policymakers, top leadership is very much aligned with what the market participants think. They're not really fully, fully buying into that this is a very strong recovery. The problem, however, is that we're not really seeing too much in terms of attitude to really change that in that we see lots of shopping festivals, for instance, taking place across the country where opening hours are being extended or where there's vouchers being handed out. But unless you really do something about the income issue with income growth being stagnant for now for a few years, probably declining for some, or in absolute terms, actually, incomes have been have gotten lower. This will only basically just divert spending on one item to another. So you really need to sustainably increase income too. And I think that's something that the policymakers are very much focused on, but they haven't really figured out exactly what to do or how to do something about it. And I think one reason there is that they're also extremely focused on protecting the manufacturing sector and to make sure that China is, is a dominant force in global trades, where they've specifically said that a key sort of KPI for 2023 is to gain more market share in global trades. And I think there's a lot of pushback then by local officials to try and raise people's income in, in absolute terms because they want to make sure that the companies in their provinces that are dragging in tax revenues, that they're competitive, both basically Chinese entities and basically foreign competitors. So I think those are some of the challenges. And perhaps one point to, to what you mentioned about private investments, because one thing we really picked when we had discussions in Hong Kong was that is the, one of the key challenges then for, for China's long-term growth prospects, basically the mismatch between a uh, communist party that wants absolute control over the economy, but it also needs a thriving private sector to drive sustainable, what Xi Jinping even calls high quality growth, which is basically private investment to private consumption. So there's a lot of effort, as you said earlier, with the new policy team that they're trying to convince both foreign and China entrepreneurs, private company companies that China is open for business, but there's a lot of skepticism still especially amongst Chinese private companies, that's how sincere policymakers are about this, that you might have another regulatory cycle down the line, maybe five to 10 years, once the private sector again grows 
too large and that they're therefore holding back on private investments in the short term too because they're not fully sure what they're basically what their future are because they're seeing so much involvement from the state sector and you can see that even in if you look at the first quarter data on investment private investment grew by uh, 0.6% I think on a yearly basis SOEs investments or uh, investment by SOEs grew by 10% so you either you already you see it is very clear in the data too that the private sector is holding back and that's going to be a challenge for the Chinese economy, especially in the medium to long term, but also in the short term. That trust deficit is still an issue. Of course, but we're also still talking about the second largest economy growing at 5%, an economy that is now, I think, about 13 trillion US dollars. And so I think over the next decade or so, another 400 million people in China are expected to enter the middle class. And so I guess while we have a lower medium term growth outlook, while we have geopolitical headwinds, the importance of the Chinese consumer market for any inter-multinational company probably can't be fully ignored. And so my question, that also a question that a participant posed for, for you, David, who has been watching investment in China for many years, if not decades, uh, how would you describe how multinationals are now reacting to this new environment in China? And perhaps also, where do companies and what sectors do they see the opportunities in, 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 a, in a country where perhaps the state sectors, again, again, trying to, to be more, more prominent while also trying to push certain sectors as part of its industrial strategy? So where would you see that? Well, I think in general, there is an adjustment of business models of Western companies involved in China, to state the obvious. China is becoming a more challenging environment for Western companies to operate. It's much more constrained. Various stories over the last month or so about national security legislation being passed. And so it is a more challenging environment. That said, if you look at a certain pockets so that the Chinese economy there's very strong growth so the luxury goods sector is just one example where Western companies are making record sales record profits out of a Chinese market and there are many others as you say China remains a very large uh, economy growing at you know, even five percent it's not great by Chinese standards but it's, it's very good by international standards so it's a large growing market but I think the way in which Western companies are engaged in China is shifting. China is no longer a production platform where you make them and you export somewhere else. A lot of companies in German automotive companies are a very good example. You're producing in China for the Chinese consumer. So it's more of a localized business model. And Tesla is another example of that as well. So I think trying to figure out that China is more complicated from a supply chain perspective because of various restrictions coming from the U.S. and others. It is a large market. So seeing China as a consumer market, uh, as opposed to simply being a production platform. And also trying to figure out how China fits in your broader strategies. We are seeing a lot of companies diversifying out of China, retaining a China presence for local consumption or part of their supply chain, but looking to couple that with the, with Thailand, with the Philippines, wherever else. So I think there is a recalibration of how China fits in the overall portfolio. Yes, there are pockets of growth, but I think the way in which that engagement happens is not going to be as it was 10 years ago, but business environment's different and the fundamentals have changed as well. Yeah, very good point. We have one last question, and then I think we'll, we've already reached the end of our time. But one question from a reader of our China Insights note on the Chinese real estate sector. Obviously, the, China, the real estate sector has been a key driver of growth and also the issues or troubles there in the last 18 months or so, an important drag on growth in China. Perhaps, Jens, in two sentences, perhaps, what is your outlook on the sector and how it will affect China's economic so the two sentences, that's difficult. The outlook is very challenging. And that's in part because the government itself has said that the glory days are over. We're not returning to where we were. So you might see sales return, annual sales return to 2016, 19 levels. 
But again, going back to your other point, that's still a very large market and a very large economy. So if you're looking at private developers, for instance, some of them still being troubled, if you find the ones that have exposure to parts of the country where there's still lots of opportunities for growth, whether that's because of urbanization or just because it's Shanghai or it's Beijing, which are big cities where a lot of wealthy people, uh, if you look at those specific developers and avoid the ones that are exposed to hinterland provinces or cities like Zhengzhou and Hanan province, there's still a lot of opportunities for that sector to grow very fast, lots of opportunities. It will shrink in size, but it will be more selective and a lot of companies in that sector will still prosper, even though it will probably be a slight skew towards state-owned enterprises, which will probably come to dominate that sector for a number of reasons. Thank you, Jens. It wasn't two sentences, but it wasn't more than two minutes. So I take that. I think I'm just left to say thank you very much to the two of you for this really interesting discussion. And of course, Thank you very much for all participants who joined us in today's discussion about China's recovery. If you have questions on the, where we are, we produce regular different types of notes and insights on China and China's geopolitical environment, as well as being regularly on, on the ground ourselves and our, our colleagues. So please keep in touch and thank you very much and good morning and good afternoon. Bye.